Chapter One of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter One. Mrs. Sam Wyndham was generally at home after five o'clock. The established custom whereby the ladies who lived in Beacon Street all received their friends on Monday afternoon did not seem to her satisfactory. She was willing to conform to the practice, but she reserved the right of seeing people on other days as well. Mrs. Sam Wyndham was never very popular. That is to say, she was not one of those women who are seemingly never spoken ill of and are invited as a matter of course or rather as an element of success to every dinner musical party and dance in the season women did not all regard her with envy all young men did not think she was capital fun nor did all old men come and confide to her the weaknesses of their approaching second childhood she was not invariably quoted as the standard authority on dress classical music and boston literature and it was not an unpardonable heresy to say that some other women might be, had been, or could be more amusing in ordinary conversation. Nevertheless, Mrs. Sam Wyndham held a position in Boston which Boston acknowledged and which Boston insisted that foreigners such as New Yorkers, Philadelphians, and the like should acknowledge also in that spirit of reverence which is justly due to a descent on both sides from several signers of the Declaration of Independence and to the wife of one of the ruling financial spirits of the aristocratic part of Boston business. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Wenham was about forty years of age, as all her friends of course knew, for it is as easy for a Bostonian to conceal a question of age as for a crowned head. In a place where one half of society calls the other half cousin and went to school with it, everyone knows and accurately remembers just how old everybody else is. But Mrs. Wyndham might have passed for younger than she was among the world at large, for she was fresh to look at, and of good figure and complexion. Her black hair showed no signs of turning gray, and her dark eyes were bright and penetrating still. There were lines in her face, those microscopic lines that come so abundantly to American women in middle age, speaking of a certain restless nervousness that belongs to them especially. But on the whole, Mrs. Sam Wyndham was fair to see, having a dignity of carriage and a grace of ease about her that at once gave the impression of a woman thoroughly equal to the part she had to play in the world, and not by any means incapable of enjoying it. For the rest, Mrs. Sam led a life very much like the lives of many rich Americans. She went abroad frequently, wandered about the continent with her husband, went to Egypt and Algiers, stayed in England, where she had a good many friends, avoided her countrymen and countrywomen when away from home, 
and did her duty in the social state to which she was called in Boston. She read the books of the period, and generally pronounced them ridiculous. She believed in her husband's politics, and aristocratically approved the way in which he abstained from putting theory into practice, from voting, and, in general way, from dirtying his fingers with anything so corrupt as government, or so despicable as elections. She understood Boston business to some extent, and called it finance, but she despised the New York stock market, and denounced its doings as gambling. She made fine distinctions, but she was a woman of sense, and was generally more likely to be right than wrong when she had a definite opinion, or expressed a definite dislike. Her religious views were simple and unobtrusive, and never changed. Her custom of being at home after five o'clock was perhaps the only deviation she allowed herself from the established manners of her native city, and since two or three other ladies had followed her example, it had come to be regarded as a perfectly harmless idiosyncrasy for which she could not properly be blamed. The people who came to see her were chiefly men, except, of course, on the inevitable Monday. A day or two before Christmas, then, Mrs. Sam Wenham was at home in the afternoon. The snow lay thick and hard outside, and the sleigh bells tinkled unceasingly as the sleigh slipped by the window, gleaming and glittering in the deep red glow of the sunset. The track was well beaten for miles away, down Beacon Street and across the mill dam to the country, and the pavements were strewn with ashes to give a foothold for pedestrians, for the frost was sharp and lasting. But within, Mrs. Wynnum sat by the fire with a small table before her, and one companion by her side, for whom she was pouring tea. "'Tell me all about your summer, Mr. Vancouver,' said she, teasing the flame of the spirit lamp into better shape with a small silver instrument. Mr. Pocock Vancouver leaned back in his corner of the sofa, and looked at the fire, then at the window, and finally at his hostess, before he answered. He was a pale man and slight of figure, with dark eyes, and his carefully brushed hair, turning gray at the temples and over his forehead, threw his delicate, intelligent face into relief. "'Oh, I have not done much,' he answered, rather absently, as though trying to find something interesting in his reminiscences." and he watched Mrs. Wynnum as she filled a cup. He was not the least anxious to talk, it seemed, and he had an air of being thoroughly at home. You were in England most of the time, were you not? Yes, I believe I was. Oh, by the by, I met Harrington in Paris. I thought he meant to stay at home. He often goes abroad, said Mrs. Wynnum indifferently. One lump of sugar? Two, if you please. No cream, thanks. Does he go to Paris to convert the French, or to glean materials for converting other people? inquired Mr. Vancouver languidly. I am sure I cannot tell you, answered the lady, still indifferently. What do you go to Paris for? 
principally to renew my acquaintance with civilized institutions and humanizing influences. What does anybody go abroad for? You always talk like that when you come home, Mr. Vancouver, said Mrs. Wenham. But nevertheless, you come back and seem to find Boston bearable. It is not such a bad place after all, is it? If it were not for a half a dozen people here, I would never come back at all, said Mr. Vancouver. But then I am not originally one of you, and I suppose that makes a difference. And pray who are the half-dozen people who procure us the honor of your presence? You are one of them, Mrs. Wenham, he answered, looking at her. I am much obliged, she replied demurely. Anyone else? Oh, John Harrington, said Vancouver with a little laugh. Really, said Mrs. Wenham, innocently, I did not know you were such good friends. Mr. Vancouver sipped his tea in silence for a moment and stared at the fire. I have a great respect for Harrington, he said at last. He interests me very much, and I like to meet him. He spoke seriously, as though thoroughly in earnest. The faintest look of amusement came to Mrs. Wynnum's face for a moment. I am glad of that, she said. Mr. Harrington is a very good friend of mine. Do you mind lighting those candles? The days are dreadfully short. Pocock Vancouver rose with alacrity and performed the service required. By the way, said Mrs. Wynnum, watching him, I have a surprise for you. Indeed. Yes, an immense surprise. Do you remember Sybil Brandon? Charlie Brandon's daughter? Very well. Saw her at Newport some time ago. Lily White style, all eyes and hair. You ought to remember her. You used to rave about her, and you nearly ruined yourself in roses. You will have another chance. She is going to spend the winter with me. Not really, ejaculated Mr. Vancouver, in some surprise, as he again sat down upon the sofa. Yes, you know she is all alone in the world now. What, is her mother dead too? She died last spring in Paris. I thought you knew. No, said Vancouver, thoughtfully. How awfully sad. Poor girl, said Mrs. Wynnum. I thought it would do her good to be among live people, even if she does not go out. When is she coming? There was a show of interest about the question. She is here now, answered Mrs. Sam. Dear me, said Vancouver. May I have another cup? His hostess began the usual series of operations necessary to produce a second cup of tea. Mrs. Wenham began Vancouver again after a pause. I have an idea. Do not laugh. It is a very good one, I am sure. I am not laughing. Why not marry Sybil Brandon to John Harrington? Mrs. Wenham stared for a moment. How perfectly ridiculous, she cried at last. Why? They would starve to begin with. I doubt it, said Vancouver. Why, I'm sure Mr. Harrington never had more than five thousand a year in his life. You could not marry on that, you know. Possibly. No, 
But Miss Brandon is very well off. Rich, in fact. I thought she had nothing. She must have thirty or forty thousand a year from her mother, at the least. You know Charlie never did anything in his life. He lived on his wife's money, and Miss Brandon must have it all. Mrs. Wyndham did not appear surprised at the information. She hardly seemed to think it of any importance. I knew she had something, she repeated, but I am glad if you are right. But that does not make it any more feasible to marry her to Mr. Harrington. I thought that starvation was your objection, said Vancouver. Oh, no, not that only. Besides, he would not marry her. He would be very foolish not to, if he had the chance, remarked Vancouver. Perhaps he might not even have the chance. Perhaps she would not marry him, said Mrs. Wyndham thoughtfully. Besides, I do not think John Harrington ought to marry yet. He has other things to do. Mr. Vancouver seemed about to say something in answer, but he checked himself. Possibly he did not speak because he saw someone enter the room at that moment, and was willing to leave the discussion of John Harrington to a future time. In fact, the person who entered the room should have been the very last to hear the conversation that was taking place, for it was Miss Brandon herself, though Mr. Vancouver had not recognized her at once. There were greetings and handshakings, and then Miss Brandon sat down by the fire and spread out her hands as though to warm them. She looked white and cold. There are women in the world, both young and old, who seem to move among us like visions from another world, a world that is purer and fairer and more heavenly than this one in which the rest of us move. It is hard to say what such women have that marks them so distinctly. Sometimes it is beauty, sometimes only manner, often it is both. It is very certain that we know and feel their influence, and that many men fear it as something strange and contrary to the common order of things, a living reproach and protest against all that is base and earthly and badly human. Most people would have said first of Sybil Brandon that she was cold, and many would have added that she was beautiful. Ill-natured people sometimes said she was deathly. No one ever said she was pretty. Vancouver's description, lily-white, all eyes and hair, certainly struck the principal facts of her appearance, for her skin was whiter than is commonly natural, her eyes were very deep and large and blue, and her soft brown hair seemed to be almost a burden to her from its great quantity. She was dressed entirely in black, and being rather tall and very slight of figure, the dress somewhat exaggerated the ethereal look that was natural to her. She seemed cold, and spread out her delicate hands to the bright flame of the blazing wood fire. Mrs. Wynnum and Pocock Vancouver looked at her in silence for a moment. Then Mrs. Wynnum rose with a cup of tea in her hand, and crossed to the other side of the fireplace where Sybil was sitting, and offered it to her. "'Poor Sybil, you are so cold. Drink some tea.' The elder woman sat down by the young girl, 
and lightly kissed her cheek. "'You must not be sad, darling,' she whispered sympathetically. "'I am not sad at all, really,' answered Miss Brandon aloud, quite naturally, but pressing Mrs. Wyndham's hand a little, as though in acknowledgment of her sympathy. "'No one can be sad in Boston,' said Vancouver, putting in a word. "'Our city is altogether too wildly gay.' He laughed a little. "'You must not make fun of us to visitors, Mr. Vancouver,' answered Mrs. Wyndham, still holding Sybil's hand. "'It is Mr. Vancouver's ruling passion, though he never acknowledges it,' said Miss Brandon, calmly. "'I remember it of old.' "'I am flattered at being remembered,' said Mr. Vancouver, whose delicate features betrayed neither pleasure nor interest, however. "'But,' he continued, "'I am not particularly flattered at being called a scoffer at my own people.' "'I did not say that,' interrupted Miss Brandon. "'Well, you said my ruling passion was making fun of Boston to visitors. At least you and Mrs. Wyndham said it between you.' I really never do that, unless I give the other side of the question as well. What other side? asked Mrs. Sam, who wanted to make conversation. Boston, said Vancouver with some solemnity, it is not more often ridiculous than other great institutions. You simply take one's breath away, Mr. Vancouver, said Mrs. Wyndham, with a good deal of emphasis. THE IDEA OF CALLING BOSTON AN INSTITUTION. WHY, CERTAINLY. THE UNITED STATES ARE ONLY AN INSTITUTION, AFTER ALL. YOU COULD NOT SOBERLY CALL US A NATION. EVEN YOU COULD NOT REASONABLY BE MOVED TO FIND PATRIOTIC PHRASES ABOUT YOUR NATIVE COUNTRY IF YOUR ANCESTORS HAD SIGNED TWENTY DECLARATIONS OF INDEPENDENCE. WE LIVE IN A GREAT INSTITUTION, and we have every right to flatter ourselves on the success of its management. But in the long run, this thing will not do for a nation. Miss Brandon looked at Vancouver with a sort of calm incredulity. Mrs. Wyndham always quarreled with him on points like the one now raised, and accordingly took up the cudgels. I do not see how you can congratulate yourself on the management of your institution, as you call it, when you know very well you would rather die than have anything to do with it. Very true. But then you always say that gentlemen should not touch anything so dirty as politics, Mrs. Wyndham, retorted Vancouver. Well, that just shows that it is not an institution at all, and that you are quite wrong and that we are a great nation supported and carried on by real patriotism. And the Irish and German votes, added Vancouver, with that scorn which only the true son of freedom can exhibit in speaking of his fellow citizens. Oh, the Irish vote, that is always the last word in the argument, answered Mrs. Sam. I do not see exactly what the Irish have to do with it, remarked Miss Brandon, innocently. She did not understand politics. Vancouver glanced at the clock and took his hat. It is very simple, he said, rising to go. It is the bull in the china shop, the Irish bull amongst the American china. Dangerous, you know. 
"'Good evening, Mrs. Wenham. Good evening, Miss Brandon.' And he took his leave. Miss Brandon watched his slim figure disappear through the heavy curtains of the door. "'He has not changed much since I knew him,' she said, turning again to the fire. "'I used to think he was clever.' "'And have you changed your mind?' asked Mrs. Wynnum, laughing. "'Not quite, but I begin to doubt. He has very good manners, and looks altogether like a gentleman.' "'Of course,' said Mrs. Wynnum. "'His mother is a Shaw, although his father came from South Carolina. "'But he is really very bright. "'Sam always says he is one of the ablest men in Boston.' "'In what way?' inquired Sybil. "'Oh, he is a lawyer, don't you know? "'Great railroad man.' "'Oh,' ejaculated Miss Brandon, and relapsed into silence.' Mrs. Wenham rose and stood before the fire, and pushed a log back with her small foot. Miss Brandon watched her, half wondering whether the flames would not catch her dress. "'I have been to see that Miss Thorne,' said Sybil presently. "'Oh!' exclaimed Mrs. Sam, with sudden interest. "'Tell me all about her this minute, dear. Is not she the most extraordinary creature?' "'I'd rather like her,' answered Miss Brandon. "'She is very pretty. "'What style? Dark?' "'No, not exactly. "'Brown hair and lots of eyebrows. "'She is a little thing, but very much alive, you know.' "'Awfully English, of course,' suggested Mrs. Sam. "'Well, yes, I suppose so. "'She is wild about horses, and says she shoots.' "'But I like her. I am sure I shall like her very much. "'She does not seem very pleased with her aunt.' "'I do not wonder,' said Mrs. Sam. "'Poor little thing. She has nobody else belonging to her, has she?' "'Oh, yes,' answered Sybil, with a little tremor in her voice. "'She has a mother in England.' "'I want to see her ever so much,' said Mrs. Sam. "'Bring her to luncheon.' "'You will see her tonight, I think. "'She said she was going to that party.' "'I hate to leave you alone,' said Mrs. Wynnum. "'I really think I had better not go.' "'Dear Mrs. Wynnum,' said Sybil, rising, "'and laying her hands on her hostess's shoulders, "'half affectionately, half in protest, "'this idea must be stopped from the first, "'and I mean to stop it.' You are not to give up any party, or any society, or anything at all for me. If you do, I will go away again. Promise me, will you not? Very well, dear. But you know you are the dearest girl in the world. And so they kissed and agreed that Mrs. Wynnum should go out, and that Sybil should stay at home. Mrs. Wynnum was really a very kind-hearted woman, and a loving friend. That might be the reason why she was never popular. Popularity is a curious combination of friendliness and indifference. But very popular people rarely have devoted friends, and still more rarely suffer great passions. Everybody's friend is far too apt to be nobody's, for it is impossible to rely on the support of a person whose devotion is liable to be called upon a hundred times a day from a hundred different quarters. 
The friendships that mean anything mean sacrifice for friendship's sake, and a man or a woman really ready to make sacrifices for a considerable number of people is likely to be asked to do it very often, and to be soon spent in the effort to be true to everyone. But popularity makes no great demands. The popular man is known to be so busy in being popular that his offenses of omission are readily pardoned. His engagements are legion, his obligations are innumerable, and far more than he can fulfill. But meet him when you will, his smile is as bright, his greeting as cordial, and his sayings as universally good-natured and satisfactory as ever. He has acquired the habit of pleasing, and it is almost impossible for him to displease. He enjoys it all, is agreeable to everyone, and is never expected to catch cold in attending a friend's funeral, or otherwise to sacrifice his comfort, because he is quite certain to have important engagements elsewhere in which the world always believes. There is probably no individual more absolutely free and untrammeled than the thoroughly popular man. End of chapter 1